aren't you glad that our God is able to deliver us from anything, from whatever difficulties we get into? Our God is fully capable of meeting our needs and taking care of us. Praise the Lord. Hope you had a good week. It's been a blessed week. Yesterday was a warm one. Today wasn't quite as warm, and I'm told that there is rain coming the next couple of days, possibly. I also got a little warning on my my phone that that uh, in Johnstown, the Johnstown area, actually Weld County, there is a tornado watch. But then I noticed a little closer, it's way out east, way out east. And uh, so, you know, these, I told my wife, I said, every time we get a tornado a watch does not mean we have to run to the basement. If that's the case, we would pretty much live in the basement out here this time of year. And so what we do is I look and see, okay, where is it? Okay, nothing to worry about. Now, I wouldn't tell her if there was something to worry about, but there's nothing to worry about. I'm glad that you're here, and I'd ask you tonight to turn to Isaiah 45. Sean, were you at Isaiah 45? Oh, good, good, good. Hard to believe, 15 more chapters, well, a little more than 15 more chapters, but uh, we're in the last, last fourth of the book. We've been at this for a while, and so I hope it's starting to sink in. <laughs> It has been for me. Let me read a verse, and then I will pray, and then we'll get into it. Isaiah 45. Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden, to subdue nations before him. And I will loose the loins of kings to open before him the two-leaved gates, and the gates shall not be shut. Now, if we know little about the history, then all this is going to be uh, foreign language to us. The more we understand of what happened to Israel and Judah in the days following, the more this begins to open up in an exciting way. We begin to, re begin to realize that God's pretty smart. In fact, God can tell the future. And when God does, it's always accurate. And so tonight we're going to have a, an, an, an amazing opportunity to look at one of God's predictions and see how clearly it played out. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for loving us and blessing us, and thank you once again for giving us this amazing book called Isaiah. And Lord, here we are in the 45th chapter, and it seems like we started this, chapter, this book not that long ago. I thank you, Lord, that we are now in the chapters beyond 39. <laughs> Because those were hard chapters, Lord, as we dealt so much with your judgment. Just a constant reminder of the sinful degradation of your people. But Lord, now that we are into these last chapters, we have this wonderful view of you and your mercy. And so, Lord, would you once again open our eyes to you and give us a fresh vision of not only who you are, but how we can better reflect you to this world. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Taking notes, number one is God's plan for a future world leader. God announced to his people approximately 175 years before he even became king that Cyrus would become the world leader. It's clear that God would empower him in his rise to power. Nations would be defeated before him, most notably the world power of Babylon to loose the loins of kings is a description of leaving them in a weakened state the girdle supported them and cinched their robes tightly 
The girdle's removal symbolized weakness. This verse goes on to describe Babylon's great defeat as God would leave open their two-leaved, meaning swinging, gates, making them vulnerable to attack. Letter A is God announced the future king, Cyrus. One commentator writes, In the revelry in Babylon on the night of its capture, the inner gates leading from the streets to the river were left open. For there were walls along each side of the Euphrates with gates, which, had they been kept shut, would have hemmed the invading hosts in the bed of the river, where the Babylonians could have easily destroyed them. Also, the gates of the palace were left open, so that there was access to every part of the city, and such was its extent that they who lived in the extremities were taken prisoners before the alarm reached the center of the palace. So it's easy to see God's hand in the destruction of Babylon and the raising up of a new leader named Cyrus. In verse 2, I will go before thee and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of brass and cut in sunder the bars of iron. Letter B, God decreed that he would help Cyrus in his advances. God gave a powerful promise that he would intervene on Cyrus's behalf to help him win his many conquests. Nations would fall before him because of the Lord's help. Interestingly, Cyrus seems to have been aware of these passages. In Ezra 1, beginning in verse 2, Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he hath charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. How would he know that? Unless he had the scriptures to read that prophecy. Verse 3. And I will give thee the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places, that thou mayest know that I, the Lord, which call thee by thy name, am the God of Israel. Letter C. God would reveal to Cyrus hidden treasures. Another commentator writes, Jewish tradition holds that when Nebuchadnezzar was about to die, he determined to withhold his vast riches from his successor, evil Merodach. Therefore, Nebuchadnezzar ordered his vast treasures to be encased in brass vessels and buried in the Euphrates River, hidden from his successor. Rabbinical tradition declares that when the time came for Cyrus to order the rebuilding of the temple, God revealed to him where those treasures of Nebuchadnezzar were hidden. In so doing, God verified to Cyrus that he was the God of Israel. Verse 4. For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, mine elect, I have even called thee by thy name. I have surnamed thee, though thou hast not known me. Letter D. God would raise Cyrus to power to benefit his people. The reason for God empowering his Gentile king is given here. God's purpose was for the benefit of his own people. There is no indication that Cyrus was actually a believer in Jehovah God, but he was undoubtedly impressed at the prophecy given so long before that named him and described his reign. In Isaiah 44:28, that saith of Cyrus, He is my shepherd, 
and shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, Thou shalt be built, and to the temple thy foundation shall be laid. Verse 5. I am the Lord, and there is none else. There is no God beside me. I girded thee, though thou hast not known me. Letter E. God declared his greatness for Cyrus to eventually read, likely as a reminder to Cyrus, who would eventually read this passage. God declared his preeminence over all of creation. The Lord is God, and there are no other gods. God was responsible for giving Cyrus his great strength, even though Cyrus was unaware of his intervention. Number two, God is the sovereign creator of all. Verse six, that they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is none else. Letter A, God never ceases being Lord over all. God knows how to bring the most glory to himself. You know that? God knows how to bring the most glory to himself. We question why he allows things in our lives, why difficulties in our lives. And I repeat, God knows how to bring the most glory to himself. It doesn't seem fair that Steve would have to struggle losing his eyesight. Doesn't, doesn't seem fair. Doesn't seem fair that James Larson would have to lose a foot. That didn't, that didn't seem fair. But God knows how to bring the most glory to himself. Isn't it wise, a wise thing for us just to determine that we should let God be God and every man a liar? That God is good. And allow God to be glorified in all things. His intervention in Cyrus's advancements would make it obvious to him and to the world that God was behind his successes. Though man seems determined to go his own way and ignore God's commandments, God never ceases to sovereignly reign over all. I love this. In Daniel chapter 4 and verse 17, this is Nebuchadnezzar speaking. He says, This matter is by the decree of the watchers and the demand by the word of the holy ones to the intent that, here's what he says, that the living may know that the Most High, referring to that Most High, Jehovah God, ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will, and setteth up over it the basest of men. Now, Nebuchadnezzar did not initially believe that. But after being humbled for seven years by God, he was taught a very valuable lesson. And that is God sovereignly reigns over the affairs of man. Verse 7, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. Letter B, God is the creator of all and the bringer of peace and trouble. <laughs> Just today, I had a conversation about God bringing evil in the world. Is God responsible for evil? God create evil. Is God ultimately the one that we can blame for evil? Well, first of all, God is the creator of all. Six days, he spoke the worlds into creation. Did I mention six days? 
more and more that is being attacked. In six days, God spoke the worlds into existence. He made the light and darkness as declared in Genesis. God blesses with peace and sometimes brings trouble, as he did to the heathen nations in Canaan who fell as Israel possessed their land. Evil, the word evil here does not mean moral evil. As God cannot participate in any such thing. God cannot be morally evil. God does, however, sometimes raise up armies against nations. The word comes from the Hebrew word to spoil. It means adversity, affliction, calamity, distress, and can be translated as wickedness. The dreadful scene in Jerusalem as they are being starved to death by the surrounding Assyrians is an example of God bringing to them evil. Not moral evil, but trouble, adversity. In James 1.13, let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. However, like we discussed today, God's not responsible for evil, but had not God made the provision, then he would not have had real free will. Real free will means that man had the opportunity to choose. Did God create evil? No. Man, man fell to death, not God. But if God said it, made it so that there was no way that he could have evil, then it would not be free will. And God would have nothing but robotic love. And I want to tell you something. When you chose of your own volition to put your faith and trust in Jesus, and you love him, oh, not perfectly. Again this morning I said, God, I don't love you enough. I don't love him like I should. I'm to love him with all my heart, soul, mind, and soul, everything, and I don't do that yet. But I'm loving him more than I was. And I want to grow in my love every day for him. And when I love him out of a free will choice, not because he forced me to do it, he's glorified in that. That brings him such incredible glory. So don't think for a second that you're not important to God. Because your decision to love him, though imperfectly, brings him an amazing amount of glory. Letter C, God will consume the earth with his righteousness. Verse 8, drop down ye heavens from above and let the skies pour down righteousness. Let the earth open and let them bring forth salvation and let righteousness spring up together. I, the Lord, have created it. He gives a powerful metaphorical image here. God described how he will ultimately be glorified and bring salvation to the world. This testimony of his great power may have been intended specifically for Cyrus. It certainly applied to all who would read it. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Psalms 97 verse 6, the heavens declare his righteousness and all the people see his glory. Verse 9, Woe unto him that striveth with his maker. Let the potsherd strive with the potsherds of the earth. Shall the clay say to him that fashioneth it, What makest thou or thy work? He hath no hands. 
Letter D, God warned against challenging him. By the way, you know what's happening up here? That's progress. You thank God for progress. And don't stop them. Let them make noise up here. We're getting a new roof. Hallelujah. Let them go. <laughs> God warned against challenging him. He warned anyone who challenges God will face utter defeat. It's folly to raise a hand against the creator of the worlds. God spoke the world to six days. You think you can go up to him and say, God, stop that. Seriously? To challenge God? There would be continual turf wars among the leaders of the nations, he describes here. God said that those battles would continue on, but none of them could challenge God. Here's how he describes it. By potsherds raising up against potsherds. Well, what's a potsherd? Imagine a piece of pottery that you would use to plant a flower. And that pottery oh, breaks. And you pick up the pieces. Those pieces are called potsherds. Pieces of broken pottery. Imagine these potsherds fighting each other. That's what he's describing here in this metaphor. The world is full of potsherds fighting each other. But now, imagine them rising up in a revolution against their maker. The one who made them, formed them, the potter himself. How ridiculous. Of course that's not going to happen. Proverbs 21, 30, there is no wisdom nor understanding nor counsel against the Lord. Verse 10, woe unto him that saith unto his father, what begettest thou, or to the woman, what hast thou brought forth? Letter E, because of the impending judgment, Israel complained about even being born. It would be foolish for a young person to belligerently question his parents for bringing him into the world. Why did you give me birth? <laughs> it would be a complaint about the life they had provided for him. Israel was guilty of the same thing to their God. They had impudently shaken their fist at God, blaming him for their trials, when in fact they were simply experiencing the consequences of their own sin. Number three. God's plan to use Cyrus for his glory. Verse 11, Thus saith the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and his Maker, Ask me of things to come concerning my sons, and concerning the work of my hands, command ye me. Letter A, I believe this is talking to Cyrus. The letter A, God invited Cyrus to read and learn God's plans for Israel. God opened this verse by declaring the awesomeness of his own person. He is at once the Lord, Jehovah. He is the Holy One of Israel, and he is their maker. This could be an invitation for Cyrus to inquire of him what his plans are regarding his people. The work God would do through Cyrus would bring a worldwide spotlight on his, God's, majestic power. Jeremiah 33, 3, Call unto me, and I will answer thee, and show thee great and mighty things, which thou knowest not. Is it possible that Cyrus could have done that? Could have called on Jehovah God, and God would reveal to him great and mighty things. After all, God did great and mighty things through Cyrus. Verse 12, 
I have made the earth and created man upon it. I, even my hands, have stretched out the heavens, and all their host have I commanded. Let her be, God boasted of his great power. God continues to boast of his greatness and awesome works. God was solely responsible for all of creation. And all the gods that have come from the imagination of men were not thought of when he spoke and the worlds were formed. <laughs> Where were those false gods when he spoke the worlds into existence? Where was Ashtaroth? Where was Baal? Where was Molech when I spoke the worlds into existence? Psalm 102, verse 25, Of old hast thou laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of thy hands. Verse 13, I have raised him up in righteousness, and I will direct all his ways. He shall build my city, and he shall let go my captives, not for price nor reward, saith the Lord of hosts. Are you seeing history being played out here? Are you understanding what we're reading? This is phenomenal. 175 years before Cyrus came on the scene, the entire story is being written. It's incredible. Let us see. God would raise up Cyrus to initiate the rebuilding of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem hadn't even been destroyed yet. It's incredible. Speaking specifically of Cyrus, God would indeed raise him up and direct him. Through God's intervention, Cyrus would both commission and pay for the rebuilding of Jerusalem. He would decree that any of the Jews in his kingdom would be free to return to Jerusalem to initiate that project. Amazingly, and to further reveal God's hand in it all, Cyrus would give the necessary funds freely with no expectation of repayment. Ezra 1, 3, and 4. Who is there among you, all of his people? His God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is the God, which is in Jerusalem. Now, this is Cyrus speaking now, years later. And whosoever remaineth in any place where he sojourneth, let the men of his place help him with silver, and with gold, and with goods, and with beasts, beside the freewill offering for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Verse 14. Thus saith the Lord, The labor of Egypt and merchandise of Ethiopia and of the Sabians, men of stature, shall come over unto thee, and they shall be thine. They shall come after thee, and chains they shall come over, and they shall fall down unto thee. They shall make supplication unto thee, saying, Surely God is in thee, and there is none else. There is no God. You see, reading this verse, we see words like Egypt and Ethiopia. We see words like coming in chains and bowing down. Letter D, God described how the nations would give God glory as Cyrus would play a role in rebuilding Jerusalem. Again, God directs his message to Cyrus. The coming world leader, God would give him the nations of Egypt, Ethiopia, the land of the Sabians. As those nations learn of his dealings with Israel, they will see undeniable evidence of God's blessing. God will be glorified in these heathen Gentiles nations. As these nations were to come under Cyrus's control, 
he may have demanded their help in paying for the restoration of Jerusalem, the city of God. Israel had gone out of Egypt with great spoils many years before. Such would be the case when they would leave Babylon because of God's work in the heart of Cyrus. No, we don't. We don't. No, we don't. He was definitely under God's leadership. Uh, number four, God restated his position and looked to the future. Verse 15, Verily thou art a God that hidest thyself, O God of Israel, the Savior. Letter A, God was Israel's God, generally hidden from the rest. God's working in the Old Testament was done in and through his own people, hidden from the surrounding nations. Isaiah praised his God for being Israel's God, their Savior. You say, now wait a minute, I thought God revealed himself to the world. Well, no, his primary method was to reveal himself to his people. It was his people's responsibility to reveal God to the world. Sounds a little like today, doesn't it? God has revealed himself to us. We put our faith and trust in him. It is our responsibility to reveal him to the lost world around us. Verse 16, they shall be ashamed and also confounded, all of them. They shall go to confusion together that are makers of idols. Well, there's that nasty word again. Letter B, God repeated his frequent warning against idolatry. We hadn't heard it for a while. God warns here against idolatry, declaring that all makers of idols will be ashamed and confounded. And this, again, could be a warning to Cyrus as an opportunity to explain that he hates all idolatry, even when practiced by heathen nations. Cyrus, you got idols in your land. Cyrus, you got idols in the palace. Get rid of them. Psalms 97.7, Confounded be all they that serve graven images, that boast themselves of idols. Worship him, all ye gods. Verse 17, But Israel shall be saved in the Lord with an everlasting salvation. Ye shall not be ashamed nor confounded, world without end. Let her see, salvation was in Israel's extended future. God interjected the assurance that Israel's end would certainly include salvation. Israel was God's chosen people, and they would eventually come to fulfill that promise when all Israel will be saved. Their salvation would be world without end, he says here, or forever and ever. In Zephaniah 3.11, and that day shalt thou not be ashamed for all thy doings. I'm going to continue that, but that means in the current day they're still ashamed. As Isaiah receives the book of Isaiah, they're still ashamed. Today they're still ashamed, but there's coming a day where they will no longer be ashamed, wherein thou hast transgressed against me. For then I will take away out of the midst of thee then they rejoice in thy pride, and thou shalt no more be haughty because of my holy mountain. Verse 18, For thus saith the Lord that created the heavens, 
God himself that formed the earth and made it. He hath established it. He created it not in vain. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is none else. Letter D, God declared his greatness again. The maker of all creation is again declared, once again establishing God's greatness, the independent source of all. The intent of God's creation was that man would be formed and would have dominion over the earth, giving God all the praise for his great works. This would also be likely a testament of God's greatness for Cyrus as he read this passage. Verse 19, I have not spoken in secret in a dark place of the earth. I said not unto the seed of Jacob, Seek ye me in vain. I, the Lord, speak righteousness. I declare things that are right. Letter E, God had not hidden his plans from his people. God's ways and resolutions were not all to be hidden from his people. He had clearly revealed his plans to them frequently. They could not say that he had left them in darkness unless he had chosen to hide his face from the backslidden and belligerent. He promised that if his people would seek him, they would find him. But now let's take and jump centuries beyond this to the time of Christ, when Christ himself was saying to his disciples, I'm going to be crucified, I'm going to die, I'm going to be put in the grave, and then I'm going to rise again. And he told them that repeatedly. And yet, when he was crucified, they all forsook him and fled and acted like he had never said it. Same response. Verse 20. Assemble yourselves and come, draw near together, ye that are escaped of the nations. They have no knowledge that set up the wood of their graven image and pray unto a God that cannot save. Letter F. God called out the remnant to return from Babylon and rebuild Jerusalem. God gave a call to those who would be in bondage in the idle, rich land of Babylon after their 70 years of judgment, which hadn't even begun yet. Babylon had not attacked yet. They're still facing Assyria. This, this is, this is mind-blowing. And they get this prophecy that they're going to come back after 70 years, but they haven't even left yet. So after the 70 years, they would be called to return and rebuild Jerusalem. The reference to those escaped of the nations likely describes the remnant who gathered to return to Jerusalem from Babylon. Israel had been taken to serve out their sentence in Babylon, a land of many idols, because of their own idolatry. God condemned the foolish practice. He said, okay, all right, if you want idols, I'll give you idols. And he put them in bondage an idle, surrounded land of Babylon. Letter G, Israel was guilty of ignoring God's frequent warnings. Verse 21, Tell ye, and bring them near. Yea, let them take counsel together. Who hath declared this from ancient time? Who hath told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? And there is no God else beside me, a just God and a Savior. There is none beside me. Israel was about to be in the clutches of the Assyrians, followed by the Babylonian captivities. Their idolatry had caused God to stir up the heathen nations to become his instruments of justice against them. God had consistently warned his people, yet they had ignored his warnings. 
God had offered to them salvation, and they would find it in no other. Verse 22. Look unto me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is none else. God's gracious offer of salvation to all, letter H. God's gracious offer of salvation to all. The God who would raise Cyrus to become the world power and who would direct him to free God's people to return and rebuild Jerusalem, causing the world to see God's greatness, cried out to the ends of the world with the message of salvation in him. With a brilliant view of the cross of Christ in mind, God invites all nations to call upon him and be saved. And, apart from the salvation of God, there is no other. Verse 23, I have sworn by myself, the word is gone out of my mouth in righteousness, and shall not return, that unto me every knee shall bow, every tongue swear. Better I. God promised that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. Every tongue confess. God made a promise and made it against his own character. I promise against mine own character. I swear by myself, God says. There would be a day in which every knee will bow and every tongue swear or confess. In light of the immediate context, the world would see God's power behind Cyrus's dom dominance and willingness to rebuild Jerusalem. God would be credited and glorified. Ultimately, however, here's a look to a time that all idolatry will have been destroyed, and the Lord Jesus Christ will take the rule as King of Kings. On that day, <laughs> every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is King. Romans 14, 11, for it is written, As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. Huh, where's that written? In Isaiah 45. Philippians 2, 10, That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. Where did that come from? The prophecy in Isaiah 45. Verse 24, surely shall one say, In the Lord have I righteousness and strength. Even to him shall men come, and all that are incensed against him shall be ashamed. Letter J, Christ will rule in righteousness and strength in his day. In his day. Well, what day is that? In the millennial reign of Christ, the nations of the world will come to Jesus. In him they will be exposed to righteousness and strength. All of his enemies will be ashamed in that day. Way back in the book of Genesis, chapter 49, verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Wow, you mean this was prophesied from the very beginning of the Bible? Absolutely. And verse 25, in the Lord shall all the seed of Israel be justified and shall glory. All the seed of Israel shall be justified. Letter K. All Israel will one day be saved. 
And we've talked about this numerous times, but there will be a day in which all of Israel will be justified or saved. That will be immediately after Armageddon, when all the unsaved will perish, leaving only the saved alive. And at that time, Israel, alive Israel, will all be saved. Romans eleven twenty six, And so all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Sion the Deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. I think you'll agree that it is a whole lot more fun studying these passages than it was going through chapter after chapter after chapter of dearth and destruction. Praise the Lord. I'm enjoying this. Let's have a prayer and commit this to the Lord. Thank you, dear Lord, for your love, and thank you for giving us the book of Isaiah. Thank you for going allowing us on this journey with you. And I pray, Lord, that you might uh, continue shaping us more into your image because of it. Lord, we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.